telling you being on the book was like having an upside-down inverted pyramid right on the top of your head. A pyramid that made the, 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 the great pyramid at Gizeh seem like a tinker toy model. They'd get you on the book, and the next thing you know, you've got a grocery bill that rivals the national debt and grows and expands, and there's a whole, there's a whole involved economy, almost like the, the national economy with armor. My mother used to go down to decide how much meat money we were going to spend for the week. It was, like, it was like laying out the dough for the armament. How much for defense this week? That was when, when you'd buy the bread. Now, now what are we going to lay out for, for education? Education, of course, referred to things like uh, mustard and pickles. Uh, what are we going to lay out this, this year for medical aid to the aged? Which meant, which made eight hour chewing tobacco for Uncle Carl. He used to come every couple of weeks to see if he could sponge any chewing tobacco from my old man who never chewed in his life. Old Carl would come in and say, got any chaw? My father would say, yep. And he'd reach down into the smoking cabinet where he kept his lucky strikes and give Carl that old package of eight hour day. Eight-hour day is the name of a chewing tobacco. And in case those of you have never heard of chewing tobacco, it's like if you took a handful of, of, of cigarettes, took the paper off, ground it up in your hand, put a little goo in it, and maybe just a little touch of tar, maybe a little kerosene, mixed it all up, rolled it up in a ball, and stuck it back there in the motors and just started to chew. Oh, boy, that would scare him one day, wouldn't it? At the office... I mean, really, I'd, it would be wonderful. It would be wonderful to see one of these very, very nice-looking official types like Henry Cabot Lodge. Or, or wouldn't it be great if it got out that, that Nixon chewed mail pouch? He was a secret char. <laughs> you know, he might get my vote if that happened. <laughs> First chink in the armor. <laughs> But it would be great, you know, if, if here, I could see a, a TV show, you know, one of these panel shows. You know, I, I, in case you don't know anything about chewing, one of the worst problems with chewing is, is the moment of truth, which always arises in chewing. And I'll tell you, I used to, I mean, I'll tell you something about my experience with chewing one time. I mean, <laughs> you notice my left ear, how it hangs there like kind of loose? That was the time when I was 16 years old and I got a package of mail pouch and I stuck half of it in the back in the left there. <laughs> I'd never done this in my life before. And I was I was working at the steel mill, and I stuck it back there in the back like I had seen all these guys down at the smelting shop. And it hangs down like a deflated basketball. Kind of hangs down. You stick it back there, and, 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 and funny thing, you know, I stuck it all the way in the back there, and I'm sitting there in the bus, and we're going along, and I began to hear this high humming note. I thought we were having trouble with transmission in the bus. And it began to get higher and higher. And then it, it got to be a kind of a, a, a high, thin buzz. And, and, and I, I felt like any minute now there was some kind of an overload relay that was going to pop. And I didn't know where it was. And suddenly it popped all over the floor. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Oh. oh, I sweat. Oh, have you ever been so sick to your stomach that you just pop out and it's so much sweat? I mean, sweat just pours off of you like gigantic, great drops drip down on your nose. Oh, I'm getting sick thinking of it now. Uh, uh, just uh, hold on a minute. Oh, there. Oh, boy. Oh. 
It would be a great television show, though. Just, just an immense TV show. <laughs> uh, here we got Lawrence Spivak, you see. Lawrence Spivak is looking angry, and he's always saying, Sir, I'd like to ask you about the proposal you made regarding the Peruvian. Uh, there's Lawrence Spivak. And over here is Martha Roundtree, and here's a kind of a fat lady wearing a flowered hat who writes for one of the Atlanta newspaper chains. She's sitting there, and right in the middle of it all is sitting Henry Cabot Lodge. And the program is called Meet the Important People. And it comes on, see? <laughs> great great picture. I could see it. On comes the theme, see? You hear, uh, first of all, it says, A CBS Public Service Production. And you see the White House slowly drifting. And then there's a stylized drawing of the Capitol Dome. A prize-winning program. Peabody Award winner. Of course, it's on 3 o'clock Sunday a.m. That's the time all prize-winning shows are on. And then there's always the MC of these shows, who who is is kind of a well-scrubbed-looking type, who reminds you roughly of a, let's say, of a, of a sensible Bergen Evans. It's hard to imagine, but you know the type. And he looks out at you and he says, um, "Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to meet the important people. Uh, today we are going to discuss on our roundtable discussion the importance of being important." in today's important world conflictual problems. And our guest this afternoon is Henry Cabot Lodge, an important person. And the camera dollies over there. And you see Cabot Lodge. He goes, <laughs> looks at you, doesn't say anything. He just sort of grins with his mouth shut. <laughs> and uh, one of our panel members today is Martha Roundtree. Hi, y'all. She looks out at you, that slightly bug-eyed look. And then they dolly, dolly over, and uh, there is Mrs. Uh, Amelia Watanabe, who is the ace reporter for the Atlanta Journal chain of newspapers. <laughs> she looks out at you, you know, that funny little look. They're all a little nervous in the beginning, you know. And there, of course, is our regular member, our regular panel member, Lawrence Spivak. <laughs> he looks out at you with that angry smile. <laughs> He's illiterate, Mort Saul. He looks out at you with an angry smile. <laughs> and then... He says, all right, now, let's begin the questioning now. All right, folks, now, uh, let's begin with you, Lawrence. And Lawrence says, uh, uh, Mr. Lodge, uh, since you have left the United Nations, uh, there have been many changes in the world situation. And we would like to ask, first of all, what are you covering up for? Lodge says, well, <clears throat> well, that's a good question. Uh, Mr. Spivak, uh... I feel that uh, my record stands for itself. Yes. All right. That's an excellent question. All right. All right. And now, now what about you, Miss Roundtree? Well, Mr. Uh, Mr. Lodge, I've been wondering what, just what it is about you that makes the voters of the Midwest, uh, well, they can't like you. This time he answers with his mouth shut. He nods a little bit. And it goes on for ten minutes like that. But each time as we pick up Mr. Lodge, there are beads of sweat beginning to form on his forehead. And suddenly, just as Lawrence Spivak says, And now, Mr. Lodge, you haven't said much during this program. I'd like to, I'd like to put a point-blank yes or no question to you. No, 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 no. Just a minute now. I'm going to keep you right to the point. I'm going to ask you... And suddenly, the camera picks up Henry Cabot Lodge. He leaps up out of his chair. 
He rushes off screen, and 30 seconds later, he comes back, and he looks very smiling. Sits down. Perspiration. Now he speaks fluently. Just goes right along and answers all the questions and answers them well. He got caught in the moment of truth. All there was to it, it's just a moment of truth. And so I saw this moment of truth today, in case you're interested in the moment of truth. <laughs> Sorry, madam, I shouldn't have brought it up at this time. What's this young man speaking about? Well, uh, I've often wondered what we're any of us speaking about. You see, one thing I've learned. I have learned that we are living in the midst of the most... the most completely wild, the most beautifully, inconceivably conceived vaudeville show that, well, we can't even, you know, you don't know whether you're coming after the seal axe, you don't know whether you're playing after the dog axe, or you don't know maybe you might even be the seal axe, you know? Get off my back. I said, get off my back. Okay? Hmm, and so I'm watching television today, and I, and I see a moment of truth. Here is, is this center fielder out there. <laughs> a beautiful moment. And I think it was Roger Maris or somebody hit a little fly ball, just one of these little nubbers, just so it just sails up and you just and it was a soft mushy click. It wasn't a hard one, just like that. And it he caught it right on the fat part of the bat, but he caught it in a twisting going away, and so he just just pushed it up and just was rising as it went out of her second base. Just a soft, easy what they call it, just a soft, easy humpback liner. Just raising up there. And the center fielder was playing him short of all things. Out of position already. And so, <laughs> he, he, the, the, the camera's on him. He starts to run. And the ball is, obviously, it's an easy out. And suddenly there's a little scurrying out there, a little shuffling around. And the next thing I knew, the center fielder is, is, is reclining. The ball is bouncing. He grabs it. And Maris pulls up with a base hit. It wasn't an error. It was a base hit. And so the announcer, I think it was Red Barber at this point, he says, you know what he did there? He started after the ball, and just when he was about to grab the ball, he flipped his sunglasses down. He says, you know, there's an old baseball axiom that either you put your sunglasses down before you run after the ball, or you don't put them down at all. He got caught in midstream with his sunglasses down. I might coin a phrase, man. <laughs> It's difficult to explain what that phrase means to you, madam, in your present overwrought condition. But I'm sitting there, and I says, that's just like all of us. We start out at a heavy gallop, and just about the time we get going roughly, we begin to feel that we're losing change from our hip pocket. It's beginning to jiggle up and out. We start reaching down into our hip pocket, hoping that we can do something about it. Our sunglasses are jiggling up and down. The ball is spinning down. No, no. You're just trying. All right, madam, I'm going to ask you this now. Just hold it there in abeyance. I'm going to ask you this. Would you have believed it if I told you that they are now? I guess you might. Well, let's put it another way. Would, 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 would you believe that there is a company that has spent millions of dollars endless hours in the laboratories. You know, they're always showing these laboratories in these cosmetic joints on the TV commercials. 
if you, there's this one where all these serious-looking people are standing around, and you suspect they're inventing a new nuclear fission weapon. You see all kinds of titrations going on up and down. And the next thing I know, Barbara Britton is stepping up to the front there wearing a white coat. I can't imagine what they're concocting with Barbara Britton at the head of the experiments. Hello, ladies. This is Barbara Britton speaking to you from our important laboratory. And you can... (laughs) They're concocting another in. So, so... uh, would you believe that there is a company that has spent countless dollars and countless hours in the laboratory to produce an odorless fertilizer? And then once they have produced the odorless fertilizer and it goes out, you know what fertilizer is, baby. It goes out on the market, it gets out there, and it's going pretty good, you know. And then somebody realizes that, that it should be selling better. So they spend another $4 million, another 8,000 hours in the laboratory, and they institute a synthetic barnyard odor in the fertilizer. And sales have gone up 200%. You know, Gene, speaking of fertilizer, how can you follow that? Speaking of (laughs) broadcast licenses, this is WOR Radio, your station for news. WOR 710 and WOR FM New York. You missed my point, Phil. Owned and operated by RKO General. Rich, verdant soil. I mean, I got the the point, right? (laughs) Heavy, heavy, beautiful, growing things. And, you know, I mean, it's it's the blood of life. I mean, the life of blood, the the blood of, the the, the life of, 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 Oh, all right, I'll go. It's the blood of life, the life of blood. Uh, it's, uh, do your commercial. May I venture a commercial here? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, did you know that, that, did you know that, um, fertilizer was sold on the air? I did some commercials. Yes, I know. On I the used West Coast to too. for it. Where the very, 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 uh, um, sexy girl says, uh, something like this. The word is, and the sponsor's name, for steer manure, and they have a jingle and a beautiful, a, a beautiful, a wonderful a commercial to sell this product to farmers who was on the West Coast and in the South. Of course, after we laughed for two hours, we recorded these things. But uh, the thing was done very seriously, and the client was very, very, very serious about it. Well, that isn't, uh, I mean, that, that that's open selling of fertilizer. I'm speaking of the fertilizer we sell all day long that we don't play. <laughs> that's another kind. <laughs> I can't follow that either. <laughs> Once again, we return to... <laughs> oh, oh. You know, it, it, when I read that, I couldn't, I really, leveling, I just could not believe it. You know, we have a terrible nostalgia today for real things. We really do. I mean, real things, you know, things that are primeval, things that are eternal. We really do. We live in this world of plastic seat covers, plastic people. Uh, we live in a, in a plywood world. Billy Rose's famous line... It's only a cardboard moon. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's a cardboard world we live in today where almost everything, you know, I, I understand now after really looking at this thing, at least this is my theory about it, why people can hardly 
today get excited over anything that really is happening in the world because it seems to be all part of a play. Uh, Castro seems to be a, an interesting sort of situation that's developing in the drama, you know. Uh, it, it seems to be part of a TV show sort of thing. It's, it's, there's an unreal quality to, to the uh, attitudes about the world situation. And interestingly enough, you know, I find that it is even more prevalent in, in the business, the business of communications, the world of uh, supposedly exposing you to uh, what the world is about. You know, many, many years ago, when they came out with, when radio first began to be an operating thing, and when television was a gleam in a couple of guys' eyes back in the 1920s, the idea about television, the idea about radio was that countless people would now, that the, almost, we were entering a, a period of unparalleled peace because there was the old idea that if there was communications between people, there would be peace. Did, do you uh, recall anybody saying things like this, Jerry? And I'm not speaking of that period. Uh, it's been said many times over and over that if, if there were communications if people could communicate, there would be no misunderstandings. Well, as a matter of fact, as history has unfolded, it has gone precisely the opposite. That, uh, that countless peoples used to feel, a hundred years ago, that uh, basically there was, many, there, was, there was many an area of good in other people. And if you read the journals of the travelers of, let's say, the 1820s and the 1830s, their attitudes towards other peoples were completely different from the attitudes of a traveler today who generally goes out to look for things that he can find to back up and to bolster the various biases that he has about the people he sees. For example, if a New York journalist travels through the South, he only writes about racial segregation or desegregation or hate of one kind or another. Uh, if a Russian travels in America, he writes in Pravda about the decadence in American life. If an American travels in Russia, he writes about the, the monolithic state where the individual is crushed and so on. You know, the whole, you know the stuff you get all the time. Well, I'm not saying it isn't true. I'm merely saying this is all we ever seem to write about these days or talk about. And now, what has communications got to do with this? Well, radio uh, has, has uh, done this. Television has brought it countless hours of, of uh, essays and, and one-hour programs about these various countries. And almost always, there is this underlying feeling about it. Let us go out and look for these things that we set out to look for. Let's find them. Let's make a big thing about them. And this is just one aspect of it. But it's interesting to note that, that, uh, that the business of communication, I have found, within the area of communications, all the people I've known who've worked in, in television, radio, are, are some of the most insular people I've ever known, too. At this insular, yes, insular. By insular, I mean there is a deep concern with their business, a deep concern with world affairs, but almost always, in many cases, as a means of a show. I've found this happening many times. But wouldn't it be great to go down and do a show in, in uh, Havana? Wow. Uh, this kind of thing. Well, uh, let's, let's, let's put on a show. This sort of thing. And, and it gets to be a point where they're... I'm sorry. Uh, this is my opinion. Get your own show. Give yours. 
that, that, the, that the intriguing thing about it is there's nothing wrong with it because our whole world is like that now. I'm not saying that, that the, this is the fault of, of the radio or television business, that who among the people really look at anything as though it's real, but not more nor less than an extension of a kind of show. And so a guy will sit there and he'll look at one hour of the, let's say, the Middle Eastern problem. He'll feel like somehow he's settled it by watching a one-hour show. He's done something about it. You know, he's made his step. And then the next thing, he's watching he, he's watching uh, the Ed Sullivan show. And it all sort of unreals, it unreals, and it unreals. Until finally we get to the point in our, in our communication world where if you go across the dial, fascinating thing to see in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, I, I, I have a feeling that a historian, maybe five or six hundred years from now, would be very, very intrigued by looking at a digest of the average television show or the average radio show that was heard by the average person in the United States during this most crucial period in our history. It would, I think the average, the composite television show would be a guy walking down a western street meeting uh, Bert Parks at the other end about to award a prize to somebody in the bar. I mean, this would be a composite, you know, a digest. That would be the average. Uh, and let's face it, I'm talking about the average. The average radio show, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I can't even, I mean, if you went right across the dial, I can't even, this great cacophony of teenage songs with a guy shrieking the time every 30 seconds, somebody giving you the weather every two and a half minutes, and a five-minute capsule of headlines, yeah, uh, this would be the, the, uh, the average show heard today. Now, these are the communications that we speak of as bringing people closer together. Whereas actually they've isolated people, I feel, more than they've brought them together. And this is, again, I have to bring in the disclaimer, this is not an editorial against radio or television, not at all. I'm just saying it's, it's I think, a, a basic thing within us. All of these things spring out of us, you know, everybody. Uh, we, we like to, you know, there's an old idea, the old the old philosophy of the we and they, which has been exploited by many people over the past 15,000 years or more. It's exploited by nightclub comics as well as by dictators. It's exploited by uh, people who uh, write books as well as people who publish magazines. The we-they theory holds something like this, that it is granted that there are things wrong with the world, terrible things wrong with the world, but we are the alert, bright people who feel that something should be done about it. They are the people who are doing it to us. Now, the they might be another country. If, Generally speaking, in other countries, they point the they out as being us now. We are the they to many people in the world. And strangely enough, in America, generally when we speak of they, we usually refer to the people who are running the government at any given time. They're the they. We hardly ever refer to any other country as the ineffable they. But uh, this, this changes, this, this uh, shifts back and forth. Uh, we're just having our day in the sun. And uh, the, the we-they thing is a very convenient thing because it takes a lot of people off the hook, particularly the people who feel good, clean, bright, and who feel that they're doing something about it by blaming it on the they. <laughs> this, is, this is accomplishing something. 
And as as our world gets more and more into a state of turmoil, have you noticed that demonstrations... I can recall doing a show. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think doing doing this kind of... Uh, this sort of inverse analysis peering down into those limbo areas of the soul, which I do perforce because it happens to be my profession, and most people never get a chance to do it. Uh, how long has it been since you've sat down for four hours straight and just thought about what you really think about things without once picking up a newspaper, without once looking at a television set, without once talking to anybody else? I mean, just sat down for four hours and thought. Well, this happens to be what I do. I do this six hours a week. And it's odd how th many things come up uh, out of the dredgings down in the mind things which I am not aware of and things which I did not become knowledgeable about until they suddenly popped out. You know, there they were. And they obviously came out of me, you know. And sometimes I'm, I'm aghast at what it is. Other times I'm amused. More often than that. I mean, more often amused than not, you know. And so uh, we sit here and I'm looking down into the mind and, and about, gee, it must have been 1955, something like that. About five years ago, I was doing a, an all-night radio program here here at WOR. Maybe some of you remember it. And um, I, I uh, had a news ticker out there, and I was out, uh, it was a record on or something, and I went out and I looked at the news ticker, and there was a story about a student demonstration in Cairo. I remember this. It said a student demonstration in Cairo. Well, I came back on the air maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, and I was thinking about this. And I did a whole thing then, a whole essay on the fact not the fact, but the thesis, the, the idea that the demonstration was almost a thing of the past and that we're constantly reading about demonstration somewhere. There's always a demonstration by some student group in uh, Iran, something of this nature. They, they have a kind of strange, unreal air about them. Who are these demonstrators, you know, these, these students that are always leaping up with signs? And I made a, I made a big thing about that, and I, point, I, I, I said that at that time... That, that, the, that the demonstration was a thing which uh, had hardly ever really been seen in America, a demonstration. And then I went on to say, and this is one of those strange, uh, let's say almost a uh, premonition, I said that I think we are heading into a period when the demonstration will become almost a way of life. And I left it hang out there in the air. Now, I don't know why I said this, what made me think it. I just had a feeling funny what kind of feelings you'll get at four o'clock in the morning. Have you ever have you ever wakened yourself up sometime at three or four o'clock in the morning? You're standing in the kitchen and the shade is banging up against the Venetian blind and the refrigerator is going and you're standing there on the cold floor and you begin to have these thoughts. Once You know, you sit down and, and maybe you smoke a cigarette and you drink a, a cup of rancid coffee that's been on the... By the way, nothing brings out those thoughts more than coffee that's been on the stove for four days. And you heat it up for the last time, put a little water in it, and by now it's at the spooning stage. It has a, th a, a thin green growth over the top of it. And you pour it into the cup and it goes blop, blop, blop. And it glups down into the cup and you spoon it up a little bit and you sup. You, <clears throat> you sip in a little of this stuff and your eyeballs redden, glow in the dark like coals. And you light this butt of a cigarette that you find in the, in the ashtray and you hear the rattle of that that torn blind against the window as that clammy breeze comes in off of New Jersey, off a of, of Weehawken. 
and you, you, you just sit there, you know, and, and slowly but surely, there, the, these, these things begin to drift in front of your mind. And then you say, you go back to bed and you don't think any more about it. And then suddenly you find yourself in the position two years later of looking at that in the flesh that you thought of in that dark kitchen many eons before. Well, this is a, this is a current thing. Yes, it happened. So at, at 4 o'clock in the morning five years ago, I said the day was going to come when the demonstration will be the way of life. And I didn't, I didn't think it was possible. And so I picked up the Times a couple of days ago, and I'm sitting there in the H&H, and I, and I had forgotten about this, this little thing that drifted before me at 4 o'clock in the morning when I was spooning in that black rancid coffee and smoking the butt of an ancient cigarette found underneath a sofa somewhere doing his eternal radio show. And I, and I, and I was looking through the times, and, and here was a, a demonstration in the Congo, a demonstration here, and I'm going through demonstration, demonstration, until finally I got to the back page there where they were having, where they were having the obituaries, and I expected, <laughs> I expected a demonstration to rise out of there. Uh, but most of those guys just missed, just missed. And, and uh, I, I put the paper down, and I thought, I thought, gee, that's funny. Not that they were having demonstrations. And then that thing began to slowly come out in front of me, that little image that I'd had in 1955. I said, you know, one of those, one of those, one of those things. And I understand what Hieronymus Bosch was talking about, you know? And Ambrose Bierce, too. And, and uh, you know, you, you, <laughs> you, you begin to understand these things, and you say, well, look, you can't go too far. Your imagination, you just can't possibly go too far, because if you do, well, you can't go too far. Get me that guitar. Get me that guitar. You just can't go too far, because if you, it's impossible. Go as far as you can, and you will find in ten minutes, it will catch up with you. Within ten minutes, I will say. If not ten minutes, at least maybe three weeks. And once it has caught up with you, I mean, there's just there's just no going back. And then you have to go further out again, until finally until finally the world of the world of the imagination becomes the world of the real. And once it becomes the world of the real, I mean, you have to go further out than that even. Let me tell you about this. I want to tell you about a man. Listen, I mean, don't 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 push and shove. Just just stand back now. Don't, don't kick the fire. But this fire is very important to us. I don't, 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 don't put the flame out. It's extremely important. I want to tell you about somebody. You see, countless centuries ago, the storyteller was the most important man in the community because he preserved the traditions. He told the people what had happened to people who came before them and what happened to people just beyond the next hill that they couldn't see. And that was important. He, he then, as he neared the end of his story, he always drew a conclusion, which is the most important part of a story. A story without a conclusion is no story at all. And I'm not speaking of an end. I'm speaking of a conclusion. You see, it's as though the author, as he nears the last paragraph or maybe the last chapter just let her go Jerry as he nears the last chapter he says you know it's a funny story isn't it what I've told
told you. And this is why I told it to you. This, this is what it means to me. And then he lays it down. Like George Ade would say once in a while at the end of a story. Moral. Don't try to figure out a thing. That's precisely what he meant. <laughs> and so, here I sit on my duff, surrounded by seven of the faithful, and the only thing you're faithful about is the only thing I'm faithful about. And I'm not speaking of faithful listeners. We're human beings. That's all. We are faithful to that. You are alive, I am alive. You have resisted becoming a turtle, so have I. Well, others have, that is true. And so we've resisted it, haven't we? Have you ever had the feeling that you are a turtle and someone has carved an obscene word on your back with a penknife and a date? <laughs> Excuse me, madam. Of course, not you. I'm not referring to you, madam. Not such a lovely, pristine, right-thinking creature as you. <laughs> of course not. And so as you sit here, you know, around the old fire, and I'm chewing the fat, trying to keep up the little embers once in a while, it's quite true that the fire burns low from time to time, and there just ain't many stories to tell sometimes. But on the other hand, there are so many that no one can possibly understand all of them or tell even one-tenth of them. Right? You know what I mean? Of course you do. And there's no way to go but there. And, and a guy comes up to me and says, Shepard, what are you trying to do? What is the underlying theme of your show? <laughs> I turn to him and I say, what's the underlying theme of your show, Mac? So what do you mean? I don't have a show. I said, oh, no? Oh. <laughs> It's the underlying theme that we all got. But none of us understand. And so countless ages ago, a man would sit in the campfire and he would tell. Just sit there. Everyone would sit around. He'd say, there was once a man, you know, who lived right here in this very, in this very valley. And he was a big man more ways than one. He had a wife and a child. And he, he used to dream, strange dreams. Do you want to hear the rest of the story? You see, you can't resist the storyteller. You just can't resist the storyteller. Because the storyteller brings it all into focus, and that's why you can't resist it, because it's not in focus. It's his job to bring it all together, you know, and make it into a pyramid instead of a great big lump of putty. That's why the pyramid is such a pleasing shape, because it has meaning, you know. It rises to a point. Do you want me to tell you a story that was told to me by another man? Okay, listen to this story now. It's about a man, just a man. And he was a man who lived in New York. An ordinary-looking man. You listen to this now. All of you, listen. 
This is important. It's a story about a man. I want you to listen to this now. When he wasn't tending his New York holdings, Guy Grand, that was his name, was generally, as he expressed it, on the go. Just on the go. He took cross-country trips by train, New York to Miami, Miami to Seattle, that sort of thing, always on a slow train, one that made frequent stops. How long has it been since you've ridden on a slow train? There's hardly anything more. You know, a, a train ride from here to Seattle would excite me 50 times more than a jet trip to Austria. Really, a slow train ride. There's nothing like a slow train get on that old train, you know, and you sit there. You look out of the window. Oh, that's because you're a kid. That's why you don't dig it yet. All kids did rockets and things when they were kids. You grow out of that. You do, you know. There's hardly anything more pleasant than sitting on your old duff in the train, you know, and they button her up, and she slowly pulls out of the station and begins to move. Oh, that's a great feeling. And especially when you've got a long trip ahead of you, you you got a couple of books. Maybe there's a chick there even. Maybe even not. It doesn't matter. There's the train and there's the distance. You walk down the aisle, you go into the club car. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you just walk and you look out of the window. You know, the one thing I know about the people of Europe, they know how to travel on a train. They love trains. And they have beautiful trains. Well, Guy Grand was the kind of guy who liked a long train ride that made frequent stops. Now, accommodations on these trains is limited, you know. Nothing fancy. And even though he engaged the best, Grand often was satisfied with the small compartment fitted with scarcely more than the essentials of comfort. But he accepted this cheerfully. And so today, as we see him, picture him. Today, on a summer afternoon, just like today, at precisely five minutes past two, with a buoyant step, considering his girth, he was 53 and he had a big, round, fat thing hanging out there in front of him. He climbed aboard the first Pullman car of the Portland Plower. He found his compartment... He settled down for the pleasant routine of the long, slow journey to New York. That pleasant? As was his habit, he immediately rang the porter to bring around a large bottle of Campari. You know what is it, Campari? An Italian aperitif? He ordered a bottle of Campari and a bottle of finely iced water and then sat down at his desk to write business letters. It was known that for any personal service, Grand was inclined to tip generously. And because of this, there were usually three or four porters loitering in the corridor nearby. They kept a sharp eye on the compartment door in case Grand should signal some need or other, and as the train pulled out of the station, they could hear him moving about inside, humming to himself and shuffling papers to and fro on his desk. Stir up the fire there a little bit. There. Wet my whistle a little here. Remind me to tell you about how Uncle Carl used to use the phrase wet 
wet my whistle a little. Remind me of that, will you? You want to hear more about Mr. Grand and what he did? Well, before the train made its first stop, orders were that the porters should not be seen. When he came out of his compartment, the porters had to clear out before he came out of his compartment, before he hit the first stop, and he did come out at every stop, out of his compartment. Now, at the first of these stops, now listen carefully now, this is very important. I know it's starting out rather dully. We're all little children, but listen carefully. You are in for a surprise <laughs> At the first of these stops, which was not long in occurring, Mr. Grand went quickly to the adjoining day coach and took a seat by the window. There he was able to lean out and to observe the activity on the platform. He attracted little attention himself, resembling, as he did, with his pleasant red face, any honest farmer. From the train station, one could see over and beyond the station from the train window, one could see the rest of the small New England town motionless now in the summer afternoon, like a, like a toy mausoleum, just sitting there in the sun, while all that seemed to live within the town was being skillfully whipped underground and funneled up again in swift urgency up onto the station platform where small square cartons were unloaded from a central car. But amidst the confusion and haste on the platform, there was one recognizable figure, this was the man who sold hot dogs. He sold them from a big box that he carried strapped to his neck. Red hot, red hot, red hot, he cried repeatedly as he walked up and down parallel to the train and just a foot from it, while Mr. Grand, after a minute of general observation, focused all of his attention on this person. And then, at exactly one minute before his departure, he began his case with the hot dog man. Red Hot! Hey, Red Hot! He shouted. He called out, Hey, Red Hot! When the man reached the window, Grand looked at him shrewdly for a second, squinting a little bit as though appraising his character, before he asked, tight-lipped, How much? Twenty cents. The hot dog man said hurriedly. The train was just about getting ready to pull out. Twenty cents. Mustard and relish. They're red hot. Red hot. Twenty cents. Done. Done. Said Grand with a sober nod. And as the train actually began to move forward and the hot dog man began to walk rapidly in keeping abreast of the train window, Guy Grand leaned out of the window and handed him a $500 bill. Break this he said tersely. The hot dog man, in trying to utilize all the remaining time, passed the hot dog to Grand. He handed the hot dog over and reached into his change pocket before having looked carefully at the bill, so that by the time he made out his denomination, he was running full tilt alongside the train, grimacing oddly and shaking his head, trying to return the bill with one hand and to recover the hot dog from Grand with the other. During their final second together, with the hot dog man's last overwhelming effort to reach his outstretched hand, Grand reached into his own coat pocket and took out a colorful plastic animal mask. A plastic animal mask. Today, it was that of a pig. 
He is wearing a pig mask, looking out at the hot dog man. He quickly donned it before beginning to gorge the hot dogs through the round mouth of the mask, stuffing it in as he did so. At the same time, reaching out frantically for the $500 bill, yet managing to keep just out of grasp of the man's hand. The train was moving faster and faster, and continuing all this while, the distance lengthened gradually, hopelessly, until at last the hot dog man stood exhausted at the end of the platform, still holding the $500 bill and staring after the vanishing train. Mr. Grand finally drew himself back from the window, doffed his pig mask. He looked across to face a middle-aged woman across the aisle who was twisted halfway around in her seat, observing Grand with a curiosity so intense that the instant of their eyes actually meeting did not seem to register at all with her. She coughed, glanced away. But irresistibly, she looked back again as Guy Grant rose, all smiles on his farmer's face, to leave the day coach. And as he did, he gave the woman a wink of affectionate conspiracy. <laughs> Just having a little laugh with that hot dog vendor. He explained, no real harm done, actually. <laughs> he returned to his compartment, and he sat at his desk, sipping his compati, a drink the color of raspberries, but as bitter as gall. And he speculated about the possible reactions of the hot dog man. Outside the compartment, even at the far end of the corridor, the idle porters could often hear his odd chortle as he stirred about alone. Inside. By the time the train reached New York, Guy Grand had gone through this little performance four or five, at least five times. Curious fellow. All right, stop. Speaking of curious fellows, this is WORAM and FM New York. I'm going to be here until one o'clock in the morning. You want to hear more about Mr. Grand? Huh? Does he bother you? All right, I'll tell you one more little thing about Mr. Grand. One more little thing about Mr. Grand. Out of the gray granite morass of Wall Street rises one building like a heron of fire, soaring up in blue-white astonishment. Number 18, Wall. Number 18 wall, a rocket of glass and blinding copper. It is the Grand Investment Building, perhaps the most contemporary business structure in our country, known in circles of high finance simply as Grands. Now, the offices of Grands are occupied by companies which deal in mutual funds, giant and fantastic corporations whose policies define the shape of nations. August Guy Grand himself was a billionaire. He had $180 million in cash deposit in New York banks. And this ready capital was, of course, just a small part of his gross holdings. In the beginning, Grand's associates, wealthy men themselves, saw nothing extraordinary about him. 
a reticent man of simple tastes, they thought, a man who had inherited most of his money and had preserved it through large safe investments in steel, rubber, and oil. When his associates managed to see, a little bit beyond Mr. Grand, all they saw was a reflection of their own dullness, a club member, a dinner guest, a possibility, a threat, a man whose holdings represented a prospect and a danger. But this was to do injustice to Grand's private life because his private life was completely atypical. For one thing, he was the last of the big spenders. And for another, he had a very unusual attitude towards people. Now listen to this. Now come on, don't drift away. He had a very unusual attitude towards people. He spent about $10 million a year in, as he expressed it, making it hot for him. <laughs> At 53, Grand had a thick trunk and a large balding bullet head. His face was pink, so that in certain half-lights, he looked like a fat radish man. Although not displeasingly so, for he always sported well-cut clothing, and near his throat a diamond the size of a nickel, a diamond now at this very moment that caught the late afternoon sun in a soft spangle of burning color when Guy steps through the soundless doors of Grand's and into the blue haze of the almost empty street, past the huge doorman appearing larger than life in gigantic livery, he who touched his cap with quick but easy reverence. Cab, Mr. Grant? Cab? Cab, Mr. Grant? Uh, thank you, no, Jason, said Guy. I have the car today. And with a pleasant smile for the man, he turned adroitly on his heel, turned north, and walked toward Worth Street. Guy Grand's gait was brisk indeed, small sharp steps rising on the toes. It was the gait of a man who appears to be snapping his fingers as he walks. Half a block on, he reached his car. You get the picture now? He reached his car. And he had a little difficulty in recognizing it at first because beneath the windshield wiper lay a big parking ticket, which Grand slowly withdrew, regarding it curiously. Looks like you got a ticket, bub, said a voice somewhere behind him. Out of the corner of his eye, Grand perceived the man in a dark summer suit leaning idly against the side of the building near his car. There was something terse and smug in the tone of his remark, a sort of nasal piousness. Yes, so it seems, mused Mr. Grand without looking up, continuing to study the ticket in his hand. How much will you eat it for? He asked then, raising a piercing smile at the man. How's that, mister? Demanded the man with a nasty frown, pushing himself forward a little bit from the building. Grand cleared his throat and slowly took out his wallet. It was a wallet of such fine leather, a long, slender wallet, that it would have been as limp as silk had it not been so chock-full of thousands. I ask you, what would you take to eat it? You know, eat it? Wide-eyed, he made a great chewing motion with his mouth. Mm -hmm. No, eat it. Mm -hmm. 
holding the ticket up near his mouth to demonstrate. The man, glaring a bit, took a tentative step forward. Say, I don't get you, bud. I don't get you, mister. Well, drawled Mr. Grant, chuckling down at his fat wallet, browsing about in it for a moment. Simple enough, really. <laughs> Let's see. He took out a few thousand dollars. Uh, I have this ticket, as you know. And I was just wondering if you would care to eat it. For, say, um... Let's say, uh, six thousand dollars. What do you mean, eat it? Demanded the dark-suited man in a kind of snarl. What are you anyway, bud, a wise guy? Hmm? Wise guy, call me anything you like. <laughs> as long as you don't call me late for chow. <laughs> uh, Grand rounded off what he had to say with an easy chortle. But then he snapped quickly to attention and unsmiling, he said, How about it, pal? You got a taste for the easy green? How about it? The man, who now appeared to be openly angry, took another step forward. Listen, buddy. He began in a threatening tone, half clenching his fists. Uh, I think I should warn you, Grand said quietly, raising one hand to his breast. Uh, I think I should warn you that I am armed. Huh? Huh? The man seemed momentarily dumbfounded, staring down in dull rage at the bills in Grand's hand. Then he partially recovered. Cocking his head to one side, he regarded Grand narrowly in an attempt at shrewd country skepticism, still heavily flavored with indignation. And just who do you think you are, mister? Just what is your game, huh? What is your game? Uh, <clears throat> Grand's the name. Easy Green's the game. Said Grand with a little twinkle. Would you care to play along? Hmm? Play along, eh? He brusquely at this point flicked the corners of the six crisp $1,000 bills. And they crackled with a brittle, compelling sound. Listen here, you, muttered the man, tight-lipped, flexing his fingers and exhaling several times in angry exasperation. Now, listen here, are you trying, are you trying to tell me that you're going to give me $6,000 to, to, to eat that? He pointed stiffly at the ticket in Guy's hand. To eat that ticket? There was a pause. That is about the size of it said Grand. At this point, he glanced his watch. Uh, it's what you might call a limited offer. <laughs> limited, that is. Uh, let's say expiring in one minute. Sixty seconds. One minute, eh? Now listen, mister. Listen, you. Said the man between clenched teeth. If this is a gag, buddy, so help me... He shook his head to show how serious he was. If this is a gag... No threats. No threats, or I will shoot you in the temple. Well, what do you say? Forty-eight seconds remaining. Forty-seven now. 
<laughs> Let's see that dough. Exclaimed the man, quite beside himself now, grabbing at the bills. Grand allowed him to examine them as he continued to regard his watch. Thirty-nine seconds remaining. Shall I start the big countdown now? The big countdown? Without waiting for the latter's reply, he stepped back. About two paces, cupping his hands like a megaphone, he began dramatically intoning. Twenty-eight! Twenty-seven! Twenty-six! While the man made several wildly gesticulated and incoherent remarks before seizing the ticket, ripping off a quarter of it with his teeth, and beginning to chew, eyes blazing. He's beginning to chew. Stout fellow, stout fellow, <laughs> cried Grand warmly, breaking off the countdown to step forward and give the, give the chap a hearty clap on the shoulder and hand him the $6,000. Oh, come on, you don't have to actually eat the ticket. He explained, I was uh, just curious to see if if you had your price. He gave a wink and a tolerant chuckle. <laughs> Most of us have, I suppose, eh? <laughs> yes. And with a grand wave of his hand, he stepped inside his car and sped away, leaving the man in the dark summer suit standing on the sidewalk, staring after him, fairly agog.
<laughs> I keep seeing that pig mask. Uh, in case you're interested, and I and I think you are. You know, it's a funny thing. I, I it, this this was a reading from a book, and uh, the book is a book entitled The Magic Christian. The Magic Christian, and that was written by Terry Southern and is one of the funniest books I've read in a long time. The Magic Christian by Terry Southern. And if Mr. Southern is listening or any of his friends are listening, uh, <laughs> he writes real good. He... Uh, not I was never uh, I've never run into his work before, but he writes with a strange directness and yet a complete indirectness that reminds me a great deal of. Um, I was constantly being reminded of somebody, and even though in the dust jacket they mention Nathaniel West, there is some of that, but that is not really. I can't think who it is yet. Well, I'll come up with it. Not that he copies him, but there's somebody whom he reminds me of. And uh, can't think. I, I've been. It's been bugging me. You know, it's like it's like uh, having a song hanging around in your mind, and you're trying to get it out of there. And since I've read him, I uh, I have somebody hanging around in the outskirts of my mind. Who he reminds me of, and it's not it's not anyone particularly well known. Uh, there is a great element of Nathaniel West in his work, though. Very funny man, uh, terribly uh, tearing satire. And speaking of satire, a woman just called, and uh, she says, uh, what, what, what is this guy doing with this satire? What's bothering him? What is, it, what is he doing this satire for? What's bothering him? And uh, it's a very interesting question. It's not to be dismissed so lightly. Uh, it always fascinates me when I see how troubled people get when... Uh, Someone does not accept most of everything in life without a without a whimper. <laughs> you know. Uh, have you noticed that? I think one of the one of the big things that separates the generation today from the I'm talking about the the generation of youngsters in 15, 16 age group, 17 maybe. What separates them from the older people is that they are apparently having a harder time. Uh, from what I can ascertain, they are having a more difficult time accepting the inanities of life without a whimper than generations before them. And somehow, it seems that they have been given some sort of insight that they can see it. Now, I'm not one of these people who, who has this great belief that children see the world the way it is. All that jazz that you're constantly being given, uh, given to by the romantics. And then if you ask the guy who is saying that, well, did you see it the way it was when you were a kid? And he said, well, well, yes, actually. <laughs> oh, come on. Now, what'd you do? Forget about it then as you grow up or what? <laughs> no, I, I don't think that it is, it is true that children can see the world any clearer than adults. But I will say this. They see it, uh, obviously, from a different perspective. It's not that it's a clearer one. It's that it's certainly a different side. And uh, since the images and the pictures that we have created, that the world has created as a way of life, as the conventions of living have become increasingly 
less operative, you know, in this great world that's this rising technology. I, I don't think anybody sitting around here tonight, anybody listening tonight, uh, will even be able to remotely predict what life will be here in the United States 150 years from now. And we, we usually take the easy way out, you know. Uh, I notice that most people, when they predict what things are going to be like 150 years from now, content themselves with predicting in the general direction of technology. They, they will predict about this machine will do that, that machine will do this. Uh, they hardly ever predict what people are going to feel like 150 years from now. They hardly dare to predict uh, what sort of... Uh, what sort of depression will rage or what sort of wild passion will rage among people 150 years from now. I'm sure that um, as long as you remind me about Uncle Carl and what he said about that. I remember Uncle Carl one night. And this is, this is one of those <laughs> images that kids retain, you know. And I am not bringing this up uh, because I'm nostalgic about the old days in any sense of the word nothing to do with nostalgia. I have to always add that disclaimer because immediately somebody will call, tell Mr. Shepard to talk about penny candy. <laughs> I don't give a, a fiddler's you-know-what for penny candy. It's terrible candy. Uh, I'm here to talk about... The <laughs> I'm here to talk about the slow process of drowning that is life. Uh, I remember Uncle Carl coming to the house one Saturday night. It was one of those it was one of those Saturday nights in which he had spent his relief check in fifteen minutes at a place called Fred's in the middle of the block, where everyone spent their relief checks apparently, who were of his particular strife in fifteen and I meant strife, in fifteen minutes listening to the White Sox ball game. I remember Uncle Carl arriving to the house one day. He arrived up on the front porch, squiffed to the ears, and, uh, you know, kids are, are fascinated about these things. They, they're, they're intrigued. One of, the, one of the great sports among many kids, that's the same one. <laughs> Will you tell Mr. Shepard that I, I'm going back to WQXR? <laughs> that's where you belong, baby. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, he arrived, you know, just, just uh, squishing every way, and uh, I'll tell you I'm going to have to give you a, a terrible admission, an awful admission that we have. I have, must make this. There are a thousand things back in your mind, way in the background in your mind, I don't care who you are, things that, that you performed, acts that you carried through, uh, situations that you were part of, that you would never, you can't even admit, you just won't admit them. And, and, and generally even though you don't admit them, quite often you don't remember them because it's convenient not to. Your mind is not only intriguing in many ways, it's intriguing in one special way, and that is it's very convenient. The mind has a self-editing work that it's cut out for itself, and it edits out the unpleasant things quite often until finally it, you can arrive at a point where the world is totally pleasant. There's no problems anywhere. And you get to that point where we're like the National Republican Committee woman I heard the other day when a man said to her on the air, I was listening to her, it was a wonderful little moment there, a moment of that complete editing out. And the man was interviewing her, and he said, well, what, what uh, does your candidate propose to do about the situation in the Congo? 
She says, well, uh, I feel that uh, that I'm glad you asked that question. Now, uh, that situation, I feel, is a situation that will call for additional understanding. It will call for concern on the part of the leaders of our country. And I also say that it 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 will actually probably involve some sort of material help. (laughs) And so, this it's this kind of self-editing. Well, the problem is this, you know, that these things still remain in our mind. Whether they're edited out, they're not thrown away. They're put into a separate drawer that says edited material. And that drawer is a very, very difficult drawer. Even though you put locks and bolts on it, you keep hearing those shrieks and moans that come out of there once in a while, and occasional thumpings from fistfights going on in there, and those old events are still being played out, slugging it out there in the dark in that file cabinet that's locked. Well, I'll tell you, I, I just pulled one of those out 30 seconds ago, and, I'll, and, I, and I'm, for those of you who are, well, the women and children, just, just please don't listen to this. When I was but a wee stripling... It came to pass that uh, on the south side of Chicago, you know, you know, children have a wonderful, blasé, and at the same time open view of things which they, you know, as you grow older, you turn away from things. You don't really observe them because you know too much about them or you think you do. You turn away. And it's a, it's a common... It's like, it's like when you see too many beggars on the street, you turn away from beggars. You don't see them. You see them, and then you don't see them, you know. You turn away from them. They're unpleasant things, very unpleasant moments when somebody clutches at your at your coat collar or at your elbow, you know, and makes those squeaking sounds. It's a very unpleasant moment. And uh, you always you always try to look as though you're hurriedly and you're, 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 you can't stop. You don't have each... You're in a hurry. I'm a hurry. I'm an important type. I'm a hurry. I'm... I'm actually just like you are, but I'm in a hurry here now. And you, you, you try to, at one and the same time, show him sympathy, and at the same time, show him no dice. <laughs> and it's that problem, you see. Well, a kid doesn't do this. A kid is deeply concerned about these things. You know, one of the cruelest men I know, I know a person who is an extremely cruel person uh, in some ways. There's no such thing as a totally bad or a totally cruel person, obviously. And this guy is a very cruel guy. Very cruel person in many ways. But strange thing about him, he, he walks down the street, and not strange at all, we could go into chapter 17 here in the Abnormal series. Uh, he walks down the street, and all he has to do is to see a beggar on the street. And he is literally and actually in tears. He is in tears. He, he, he gives the guy some money, and he walks down the street, and you can't talk to him for 15 minutes later. And this is, again, you see, the problem. He, it's, but kids don't always do this. Children have another attitude towards these things because they don't have premonitions of, well, I, I take this back. Children often, if I remember being a child right, and I'm not, I'm not getting this from observing children. I'm getting this from observing myself as a child. I can remember at the age of 15 or 16 having fantastic premonitions of this being either me or my father or everybody I ever knew every time you'd see a beggar. you, you uh, Particularly you. I don't know. There's just terrible premonitions. And also, almost always, kids of 15 or 16 suspect they're not going to make 21 ever. They can't see themselves living that long. 
and they have great uh, shadowy fears of death in one thing and another. And because they, you see, they look at the things that the older people turn away from. They just turn away from them. They just they won't concern themselves with them. Just walk away. You know, just turn away. You just won't look. Well, when I was about eight or nine, something like that, you know how you'll, you'll get into a pattern a certain time when you will play a certain game or do a certain set of activities frantically for a while. Like make model airplanes like mad for about six weeks and then you quit. You just stop. And then you start doing a thing with a yo-yo. And you'll do this for about <laughs> for about six weeks and then you stop. Or then you'll start reading like mad for about eight weeks and then you stop. You know, there's the kids go through these cycles. Uh, <laughs> well, we went through one cycle, which I will never forget. It made a deep impression on me. I was about eight or nine, and I would go to, to my cousin's house. And my cousin lived in a neighborhood in Chicago. Uh, it was on the north side, where every 15 feet there was a tavern. Every 15 feet. I mean, it, it was just Chicago is the city of taverns, neighborhood taverns, you know. They really have them. And so we, would, we, we, we started this game. At about 9 o'clock at night, we would go out to just follow drunks around. Don't ask me why we did it. We did it. We would just follow them around. Just follow them and observe them. We'd follow them. And then we would come back and we would tell, tell everybody at home. You know, they're all playing cards. Hey, we saw what the, you know, the kids are starting to And they, the people were always very embarrassed. Now, what are you doing that for? Now, now why, why did you have to follow Mr. Bruner like that? Now, what are you trying to do? Well, it, it was funny. They fell down, the guys, and then uh, the police and the kids are telling the story, you see. Well, I, I never quite understood that until one Saturday night, Uncle Carl arrived at the house. He had spent his relief check in 15 minutes, and you could hear him squish. And he walked up, and, and being a kid, I said, Uncle Carl, Uncle Carl, what, 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 what did you, they, wh why do you drink, Uncle Carl? You know, because kids always, always heard, you know, oh, he drinks. Why do you drink, Uncle Carl? Terrible direct action, nobody, and awful thing, nobody would think of asking that when you're an adult. Why do you drink? Uncle Carl looked at me for about 30 seconds, and then he said, well, I guess to wet my whistle. Which is as good an answer as any. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.